Nintendo's game guru Shigeru Miyamoto throws his arms up in frustration. A co-worker pops his head up from the next cubicle. Uh, you okay? Yeah. Well, no, not really. The colleague isn't surprised. He's been hearing Miyamoto's groans for weeks. Miyamoto designed the hugely successful Donkey Kong and Super Mario Brothers, but now it's 1995 and nailing this three-dimensional world of Super Mario 64, it's tougher than he ever imagined. The in-game camera again, right? Miyamoto nods and runs a hand through his mop-top hairdo. What else could it be? The trouble was familiar to his co-worker. The Mario 64 team wants the players to feel like they're inside the game world, not outside looking in. But how exactly? Well, first, they had the camera trail behind Mario like a drone, but that made it hard for players to judge Mario's trademark leaps. Then, the camera followed directly behind Mario, but that gave players a permanent view of his backside. So, they zoomed out, but then Mario looked ridiculously small. So we just tried giving the player total control over the camera's position. Well, that sounds good. What's wrong with that? Miyamoto turns to his colleague and explains further. Controlling Mario and the camera at the same time, it's just too much. You have to constantly shuffle between playing hero and directing the camera. This isn't going to work. The colleague shakes his head, commiserating. Miyamoto slumps down in his chair and stares at the TV screen, sitting amid the clutter covering his desk. A lonely, unblinking Mario looks back at him, waiting for instructions. Nintendo can't stay on the sidelines forever. The Sony Sega Slugfest will reach a resolution, and the longer Nintendo waits, the stronger an opponent that winner will become. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies' Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana has unmistakably unique culture, world-class cuisine, and the nation's top-ranked workforce development program. This incredible state's business environment is powerful, rich, and diverse. It's the gateway to 38 states and the world with a port system delivering the most domestic cargo in the U.S. It's also where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will transport the first women to the moon. Discover Louisiana's investment resources at OpportunityLouisiana.com to learn how your company can gain a competitive advantage in Louisiana. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. I'm David Brown. In our last episode, Sega had triumphantly announced its Saturn game console sooner than anyone expected. But then, bam, Sony's PlayStation came out and landed a stunning counterblow by undercutting Sega's price by nearly 30%. The PlayStation took off. You're listening to Episode 5 of our six-part series, The Sleeping Giant. 
1995, and it's been two years since the market leader Nintendo announced it was building a new console, and their project has been shrouded in mystery ever since. Gamers are growing impatient, and Miyamoto feels the pressure. He knows he should be delivering a game so addictive that it stops PlayStation in its tracks. Miyamoto also knows he's got to solve the problem, and he knows that Nintendo's future depends on it. Nintendo's game guru Shigeru Miyamoto is sweating it. All the wonderful 3D worlds of the new Mario game Super Mario 64 are useless if he can't get the camera in the right place. But Nintendo president Hiroshi Yamachi isn't even slightly worried. Nintendo is selling lots of games for its Super Nintendo and handheld Game Boy consoles. Not to mention, it has three billion or so dollars in the bank. With a war chest that big, Nintendo can never be counted out. Yamachi sees no need for Nintendo to rush. After all, the Sega Genesis was on sale two years before Nintendo launched the Super Nintendo, and Sega still lost that battle. Nor is Yamachi scared of the PlayStation. Oh sure, Sony has a ton of games, but Yamachi thinks they're of poor quality. Let Sony and Sega squabble with each other for the number two spot. When the Nintendo 64 console is released, he's confident it will define the 3D future of video games. In the meantime, Nintendo's marketing teams adopt a strategy of sowing fear, uncertainty, and doubt about its competitors. The message, repeated over and over, is why buy Sony's Chevrolet when you could have Nintendo's Cadillac tomorrow for the same price? Nintendo also traffics in rumors, suggesting that Nintendo's new console could appear in stores at any moment. The unspoken message behind all of this is simple. Keep your wallet shut and wait. But behind the scenes, the Nintendo 64 is having a troubled birth. And it's not just with a camera. Nintendo, the world's leader in video games, has joined forces with Silicon Graphics, the world's leader in visual computing, to introduce the most exhilarating, breathtakingly realistic 3D video entertainment ever witnessed. Project Reality. It started off okay when Nintendo brought in California's Silicon Graphics to create its new console. Silicon Graphics' reputation in computer graphics is unparalleled. It's powered some of Hollywood's most heart-stopping special effects. Like Jurassic Park and The Terminator, now Silicon Graphics is using its expertise to give the Nintendo 64 the finest 3D visuals of any game anywhere. But when the prototype chips finally arrive at Nintendo's headquarters, the results are disappointing. The chips offer smoother visuals than PlayStation. But the graphics update too slowly for a video game console. The player would give a command, and there'd be a slight lag before the graphics respond on screen. Fixing this causes further delays. And then there's the controller. There have been dozens of prototypes, but none of them can effectively move the characters in three dimensions. The latest idea is to reduce the Nintendo 64 controller into a motion-sensing wristwatch. So in a large windowless room within Nintendo's Kyoto headquarters, the company is testing its new controller with a dozen adults and children. The man conducting the focus group calls for those gathered to listen. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you for coming in today. 
We've asked you to be here to be the first to try our new controller, so please get ready to strap the devices around your wrists just like you would a regular wristwatch. Now, as you can see, we've got Mario up there on the TV in front of you. Now, to get him to move, all you have to do is move your wrist in any direction. Now, as you move your wrist, Mario will move in the same direction, and you'll see stars scattered about. We'd like you to have Mario collect as many stars as possible. Does everyone understand? The adults and children nod. They have their wrists raised, waiting for the word to start. Okay, and go. From the back of the room, a couple of smiling Nintendo engineers watch as the people start wiggling and jiggling their forearms wildly. But then their expression changes pretty fast. Clearly everyone is struggling. They're moving their wrists around, but groaning in frustration. Kids are near tears. One seven-year-old boy wails, I can't do it. It doesn't work. Another, this isn't fair. I want to play, but it doesn't work. On the screens, Mario's are all over the place. They're walking into walls like zombies. They're running in circles. They hop around randomly. It's like Mario is hepped up on some kind of psychotropic drug. Only one man, his face grimaced in concentration, manages to get Mario to respond, and he's moving his arm like a robot. After much effort, he becomes the first player, scratch that, the only player to collect a star. In fact, he's the only happy person in the room. The engineers look defeated. Mentally, they've already tossed this unconventional controller onto the rising heap of Nintendo's failed experiments. Yamachi takes all the setbacks in his stride. But there is one thing getting under his skin. The guys making games for Nintendo consoles. They want to make games on CDs, but Nintendo insists on sticking with their hard plastic cartridges. Nintendo's decision is driven by cost. Yamachi wants the Nintendo 64 to launch with a price tag of $250 or less to undercut Sony and Sega. Adding a CD player to the Nintendo 64 would put that target in jeopardy. But game publishers want CDs because they are cheaper and faster to produce, and they allow games to feature pre-recorded audio and lavish graphics. For an industry that now has designs on becoming the new Hollywood and wants its games to look and sound like movies, Nintendo's decision to snub CD is unacceptable. One of the companies most upset by Nintendo's rejection of CD is Square. The Tokyo publisher is famous in Japan for its fantastical role-playing game series Final Fantasy. Since the late 1980s, every new installment of Final Fantasy has been big news in Japan. The most recent release, 1994's Final Fantasy VI, sold millions in Japan and won countless awards. Final Fantasy is the kind of game series that sells consoles. The CEO of Nintendo and Square have long been partners, but much like their on-screen characters, they're headed for a crippling clash. Square's game developers have big ambitions for the next Final Fantasy game. They want to build a game that feels like a movie, an epic adventure that will take dozens of hours to play, featuring lush, hand-painted worlds, imaginative 3D characters, lots of dialogue, and a musical score to match. They want a game so vast 
that it will have to be spread across multiple CDs. Two years in the making, and a cast of thousands. They said it couldn't be done in a major motion picture. They were right. Final Fantasy VII. Knowing that such a game is simply impossible to put on a cartridge, Square Vice President Shinchiro Yajitani heads to Kyoto to urge Nintendo to embrace CD technology. When Kajitani joined Square in the early 1980s, it was a cash-strapped startup. The company couldn't even afford to redecorate the former hairdressing salon it called home, and its programmers had to share computers. Now? Well, now it was one of Nintendo's closest partners. Since those down-at-the-heel days, Kajitani had gotten to know Nintendo well. Now, he hopes that the years of trust between the two companies will be enough to persuade Yamachi to rethink sticking to cartridges. They meet in Yamachi's minimalist office. As Kajitani takes his seat, Yamachi lights a cigarette. The blue smoke captures the sunlight streaming in through the office windows. Kajitani begins to make the case for CD. Mr. Yamachi, Final Fantasy VII is a game unlike anything anybody has experienced before. Players will have a huge 3D world to explore, and this world won't just be big. It will be beautiful. It will look like a film, but we have a problem. Yamachi raises an eyebrow. And what problem is that? Our dream for Final Fantasy VII won't work on a cartridge. It is technically impossible. Yamachi frowns and taps the ash of his cigarette into the ashtray, but says nothing. Kajitani presses on. We need to use CDs to achieve our ambition. Unless the Nintendo 64 has a CD player, we'll have no choice but to release Final Fantasy VII on another company's console. Either that, or give up on what we have in mind. We don't want to have to make that kind of choice. Kajitani waits a second for Yamachi to absorb this, and then he continues. We like working with Nintendo, and we also believe that a CD-based Nintendo 64 would be good for Nintendo, too. Yamachi replies immediately. CD is not the right decision for the Nintendo 64. We've thought through this question already. CDs will make the Nintendo 64 too expensive and too slow. Video game players won't wait for minutes while their games load from a CD. But with the cartridges, they can turn their console on and start playing immediately. I'm afraid I am not changing my mind. Kajitani returns to Square's offices in Tokyo to break the bad news. He feels sickened by the stark choice Square now faces. Leave Nintendo or abandon its dreams for Final Fantasy VII. But the truth is, it was never really a choice. Square starts negotiations with Sony about bringing the next Final Fantasy game to the PlayStation. And Sony is ecstatic. Keen not to squander this opportunity, Sony gives Square a generous deal. Sony will charge Square lower than usual royalties on its game sales, and it will heavily market Final Fantasy VII across the world. A few months later, Sony takes in another refugee from Nintendo, Enix, the maker of Japan's most popular role-playing game series, Dragon Quest. Like Square, Enix just can't make its next Dragon Quest game on Nintendo's cartridges. PlayStation now has two of the most popular game series in Japan, all to itself. 
The defections rattle many within Nintendo, Yamachi included. But not for a moment does he consider altering course. The Nintendo 64 will be a cartridge console. The decision has been made. Yamachi tells unnerved employees that losing Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest is merely a short-term setback. Don't worry about this. In time, Square and Enix will see that we are right. And when the Nintendo 64 defeats the PlayStation, as it will, they will be back. But as more and more game publishers head for the exits, pressure mounts on Nintendo's own studios. The games Nintendo makes itself will now have to be strong enough to sell the Nintendo 64 and stop PlayStation. Almost single-handedly, Nintendo has to take on Sony and almost every game company on the planet. It's Nintendo versus the world. Yamachi is taking a huge gamble. And this, well, this is not a game. Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more about Intercom's business messenger for customer support. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. After years of promises and rumors, today is the day that Nintendo 64 is finally revealed to the world. It's a chilly November day in 1995 in the city of Shiba. Hundreds of children, seemingly inured to the cold, are buzzing with excitement as they wait outside the convention center in the city that sits on the east side of Tokyo Bay. Inside, it's Nintendo's annual showcase of all things Nintendo. In a few minutes, the children will be let in to sample what's on show. And this year, there's one thing above all that they want to see the Nintendo 64 console. But before the kids are let inside, Yamachi must finish the keynote address to the show's press and trade delegates. And like the children outside, Yamachi's audience has the Nintendo 64 on its mind. Yamachi first tells them about an upcoming game for the Game Boy, something called Pokemon. The audience has never heard of it. They start to grow impatient. Then, Yamachi goes on and on about the superiority of Nintendo 64's 3D graphics and its super-fast processors. This is all prelude to the real point he wants to make. The PlayStation is inferior, and CDs are just a fad. The Nintendo 64, well, that's the real deal. Just plug in the cartridge and play. 
the best gaming experience ever. Yamachi then whips out a Nintendo 64 controller and holds it in the air. The audience does a double take. It's a strange object, a three-pronged device with a tiny joystick on the middle fork. The basic purpose of video games is to offer users something they have not experienced before. And that is what they'll get with the Nintendo 64 and its controller. The audience tries to imagine how players might hold this strange controller. Yamachi continues speaking. See this joystick on the controller? That's the 3D stick. It allows the user to have a more realistic control in sports games like soccer or baseball. You can feel the difference. And then Yamachi finally, finally answers the big question. The Nintendo 64 will go on sale next year in Japan and North America. Europe will have to wait until the following year, in 1997. As a final note, I would like to tell you why the public had to wait for the Nintendo 64. Did we do it to dominate the market, to protect our market share? No, we did not. We are launching the Nintendo 64 to save the games industry. Yamachi paints a grand picture of an industry making the same mistakes that brought Atari to its knees. He warns that consumers will again abandon games if competitors flood the market with boring copycat games. That's right. He's casting the PlayStation as an existential threat to the industry. And Nintendo? Well, Nintendo is the answer. We are launching Nintendo 64 to change the market so that players won't leave us, to assure that the game business has a future. If the defections of once loyal game publishers have dented Yamachi's confidence, well, he sure isn't showing it today. But as the press, trade, and school kids arrive at the show's Nintendo 64 display, the consequences of that exodus are all too evident. There are just two Nintendo 64 games to try, Super Mario 64 and Kirby Ball 64, a racing game starring a pink beach ball hero. It's slim pickings, but those who play Super Mario 64 are instant converts to Nintendo's cause. The bizarre controller works like a dream. The controller's 3D stick allows players to point Mario in any direction and even control how fast he moves. The in-game camera is spot-on, too. It keeps pace with Mario, but players can also tweak the view if they want. In fact, it's a revelation compared to the clumsy controls of many 3D PlayStation games where players have to command characters that chug along like tanks. They have to stop the character in order to turn and then accelerate. By contrast, Mario feels like he's always existed in a 3D world. Among those trying out the Nintendo 64 that day, is a member of the Sony Computer Entertainment team. He returns to the Sony office, dejected. PlayStation visionary Ken Kutaragi spots him and rushes over. Well, how was it? What's the Nintendo 64 like? The employee gulps. It's... It's fantastic. The controller's weird, but it's very clever. Makes moving characters in 3D effortless. Super Mario 64 is amazing, too. Looks great. I, I hate to say it. But I can't recall playing a 3D game that has felt so right ever before. Kutaragi secretly feared this would be the case. Damn. Yes, it always was wishful thinking that Nintendo would fall on its face. 
The media showers praise on Super Mario 64, the Nintendo 64, and its innovative controller. After years of sitting on the sidelines of the next-generation console war, Nintendo is finally ready to make its move. The half-decade Cold War between Sony and Nintendo is about to turn red-hot. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. We certainly hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll also see some offers from our sponsors, and we hope you'll support our show by supporting them. If you like what you've heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Another way to support us is by answering a short survey at wondery.com survey and tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. A quick note about the conversations you've been hearing. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Produced by Emily Frost. Sound designed by Kyle Randall. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman and Marsha Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering. For over 100 years, General Motors was America's automaker. But after the 2008 financial crisis, the storied car company nearly died. Hi, I'm Lindsey Graham, host of Wondery Show, Business Movers. We tell the true stories of business leaders who risked it all, the critical moments that define their journey, and the ideas that transform the way we live our lives. In our latest series, an HR executive named Mary Barra rises to become General Motors' first female CEO, just in time to save the company from ruin. But as Mary fights to lead General Motors into the future, tragedy strikes. Listen to General Motors Back from the Dead from Business Movers on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or the Wondery app. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen ad-free.